Okay. Let's see. If you have Bibles with you, you can open up to John chapter 21. Keep a finger in there, I'll get to it in a little bit. As you look for John 21, I just want to tell you that in Luke 4.18, Jesus offers to us what could be called his personal mission statement. If you remember, he's in the temple, they hand him the scroll, opens up to Isaiah 61, and he begins to tell why he's here. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Inspired by that verse, Jesus' words in Luke 4.18, I believe that God's personally called me, has called Tom to do three things. I think he's called me to tell people good news, especially the good news of the Father's lavish and extravagant love for them. Because wait, too few people are aware of it. I believe that he has called me to open blind eyes, in particular blind spiritual eyes, that people could see spiritually like they've never seen before. And I think the third thing he's called me to do, inspired from that verse, is to set people free. Especially to set people free from the religious traditions and the rules and regulations of men. And you know what? We are, we're just, we're just surrounded by them. We're surrounded by them in our lives, in our culture. We're surrounded by them in our church culture. And so, and it plays out in all different ways. So, just on that last point, I love when the kids run around. I have to tell you, I love during worship when the kids run around. Now, I can understand how that might be uncommon for some of you. And, you know, maybe when my kids were little, I would have been saying, sit next to me and don't move. I don't care anything about that anymore. It used to be so important to me. It's not important to me at all. I, I get inspired by them. There is a sense of freedom that they walk in that I envy. I look at them, and, I, and then I look at us as adults, and I think, what happened? <laughs> how did we, in God's presence, how did we get from that to this, right? And so, my heart is that we would all run around like that. And I'm not kidding. I've had worship services where people are out of control. And not just being weird for weird's sake, they are just so excited to be in God's presence. So... For all the moms and dads out there, I want to tell you this this morning. I am so good with the kids running around. I don't, not only do I not want to hinder it, I want to do everything I can to encourage it. That they would all run around during worship would be a delight for me. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I don't want to pass on to the next generation the shackles that have been placed on ours. So who cares if it's a little disruptive? I don't think God cares. And I want you to know as the pastor of the church, I couldn't care less. So moms and dads are just chill. Let the kids have fun. It's all good. Anyway, I really do like it. So anyway, I feel like God's called me to do those three things. Tell people good news, open blind spiritual eyes, set people free. Be free, be free. <laughs> and so with that in mind, I want us, we're, this is where I'd like us to go as a community. I want to live supernaturally. 
I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's given us His Spirit. His Spirit resides within us. I don't know one person on the planet today who's living in the fullness of what that looks like, what it means, or how it should function in our lives. We have room to grow in that area. I want to live a supernatural life. And as much as I'm able, I want to help you do that too. I believe that the journey God's taking me on has has equipped me, has made me uniquely capable, called, able, gifted, to help people live supernatural lives. And I think we're we'll, we're going to get there. But some things should and need to happen first to get from here to there, to get from living natural to supernatural lives. We need an environment of love. We need an environment of mercy and grace. We need an environment of freedom. A place where people are free to practice and to experiment and to explore. A place where people are free to make mistakes. Have you ever grown to any measure of expertise in any area of your life that was mistake-free? Nobody. Years ago in New York City, I was a, a janitor in the New York City school system. And I was doing a walk through the building one morning. I walked into a classroom and there was a big sign on the wall that said, This is a mistake-making place. I'm thinking, that's right. That's absolutely right. That's what the church ought to be. This ought to be the safe place where we can experiment, where we can explore, where we can practice living supernatural lives so that we can go out there and have an impact on the world. There's got to be some place where we can practice doing it. I think this should be the place. This, our community should be the place for that. And so for this to be a safe place for that, we need to love one another. If we love one another, then boy, we've got lots of grace, right? People can make all kinds of, kind of mistakes. They can be as messy as they want to be. I love you. you know? When we learn new things, it's messy. Creativity is messy, right? Is there anyone here who does arts and crafts that isn't messy? That doesn't get some paint on them somewhere? That's good. Boy, it's a whole other series. Maybe I'll speak, to, speak it sometime. But do you realize that the way God introduced himself to man was creatively? The scripture says, in the beginning, God created. That's how he introduces himself to us. There ought to be a measure of creativity that flows out from us because he lives within us. And my life experience, just as a, as a man... But certainly as a pastor has told me that when that begins to flow out of us, especially in the beginning, it's real messy. And I want you to know as your pastor, I am really okay with messy. Messy doesn't bother me. I get excited at messy. Messy's good. It really is. So, messy creativity exploring living supernatural lives happens better in an environment where people love one another. It's, it creates a safety. I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to go beyond my comfort zone, try something I've never tried before if I'm in a community of people where I know I'm loved. Because I could screw up really bad and you won't care. It's like, ah, oh, Tom's doing the best he can. Yeah, and he did it better this time than last time, so I'll try something new. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that makes sense to me.
We need to love one another. We need to live love. Now, to live love, we need something before that. I want to live a supernatural life. To do that, I need to be in an environment where we live love. In order to live love, I need something foundational underneath that. I need to live loved. It's very hard for me to live love if I haven't been loved. Scripture says that we love because He first loves us. Right? I can't love unless I've been loved. I don't have the sources. I don't have the resources. I don't have the capabilities. But when He's loved me, it transforms me. And so, I believe we need to know, as believers, as sons and daughters of a Heavenly Father, we need to know with confidence and certainty that God the Father loves us lavishly and extravagantly. And that's what's inspired this series of messages. It's been based upon Wayne Jacobson's amazing book called He Loves Us. Excuse me, He Loves Me. And so the three main points of this series have been that God loves us extravagantly. Number one. Number two, unfortunately, most of us don't know it. We wouldn't even consider living supernaturally because we don't feel safe and loved because we don't know He loves us. So my beginning point to get where I'd like to see us go to be a, a people who live supernaturally on this incredible island, it begins with being secure in the fact that the Father loves us. So today's, today will be the seventh in that series of messages. We've, we've looked at John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, and we talked about daisy petal Christianity. He loves me. He loves me not. We've, we've talked about the attributes of God and the incarnation and friendship of God in the second of the series. We talked about motives. And why do we become a Christian? And I told you in that message, if you want to know who God the Father is, look at Jesus. A lot of us have this screwy kind of unspoken mindset that Jesus is the nice one, the Father's the mean one, the Spirit's the weird one. And it's not true. Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. He is the perfect earthly representation of the Father's heart. In week four, we looked at the story of the prodigal son. And what makes that message so powerful is that Jesus is painting a picture of his father for us. And what an amazing father he is. Different than any father I've ever known. Incredible in his love. Week five, we looked at the tyranny of the favor line. And we all live with it. That invisible line that tells us whether or not we've met enough of someone else's expectations to merit their approval. We've all lived under that. And we looked at that in light of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. He has this incredible encounter with God. He is an audible voice. Sees, has a visitation from God. Receives apostolic calling. Man, I know some ministers that would give a limb for that. And what did Paul do to earn it? Did he do anything to get himself above that favor line so that he could have a visitation? And you guys ever been to conferences where they tell you all the things you need to do, the checklist you have to go off, or the way you got to perform so you too can have a visitation just like me? <laughs> and buy my book. I'll show you how to do it. What did Paul do? He was killing people, man. 
He was a nut job. He was a religious fanatic. In his zeal, he's chasing down Christians and arresting them, having them stoned to death. This is a bad dude. He did nothing to get himself above the favor line. The only good thing in him was that God chose him. And he doesn't choose like we choose. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chooses the weak. He chooses... Scripture says that he chooses the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He's not like us. We think he's like us. We think he thinks like us. We think he acts like us. We think he gets angry like us. We think he judges like us. He's nothing like us. That's why we need him. His love is more amazing than you can ever possibly imagine. I believe it is impossible to overstate the magnitude of his love for us. Last week we looked at the rich young ruler and we took a look at that text in a new way than any of us have ever seen before. Jesus told him, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And the poor guy walked away sad. And most of us think, oh man, I'll never measure up. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying at all. I think Jesus was raising the bar to a ridiculous point to show this, this young man, this deceived passionate young man how mistaken he was Jesus wasn't offering him an opportunity to buy his salvation he was just trying to tell him dude there's nothing you could do to earn this you'll never get there remember that text at the end of it says it's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven right I'm thinking so I'll work hard all my life put a little extra money in the bank and now I can't get to heaven? What does that mean? I don't think it's talking about dollars and cents. I don't think it has to do with your bank account or your portfolio. I don't think it's talking about how much you're going to leave to your kids as an inheritance. I'm thinking it's talking about it's harder for a man with his own resources and capabilities to get into heaven than for those who'll just trust me. That's the point Jesus is trying to make there. I've wandered so far off my notes. <laughs> okay, that's enough of a review. So this will be the seventh in the series. I'll do another one on the Father's Love next week as well. But in today, I want to take a look at, at Jesus' post-resurrection encounter with Peter. And I want to talk about the difference between the power of fear and the power of love. So if you still have a finger in John chapter 21... Or you just look up at the screen. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know, I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said, feed my sheep. So I thank you for your word and for the truth and the power that's in your word. Open our eyes to see. Speak your truth to us. Amen. So the very first Sunday we were here, we were still we were still candidates. We came and visited. I think it was the end of July, and um, and we kind of began by introducing ourselves. And Nadine came up, and we told you guys the story about how we met. You remember that? So I always love riding on Nadine's coattails when we meet new people for the first time because they love her, and you know I, they get to love me because they love her. And so that worked out pretty good. We had a good day. Anyway, in that story, I tell you how we were childhood sweethearts, right? Uh, she was 16 and I was 18 when we started dating. And I got to tell you what, man, I was a passionate young man. I was, ooh, I was so intense. And uh, so this past week, we finally, we got rid of all our, our boxes. We've unpacked every box. We are completely unpacked and totally moved in. And I'm happy. And so as we were going through the, some of the last few boxes, Nadine finds this little box that she's kept. We've been, fe- next, uh, let's see, February, it'll be 35 years since we started dating. We started dating on February 11, 1978. We celebrate that day every year. It'll be 35 years. So she found a box that had all the love letters that I wrote to her when we were dating. And so later that night, I hear her on the phone with my daughter, listen to this one, and she's reading... <laughs> She's reading the poetry, this flowery poetry. Boy, I tell you what, I had it bad, man. I had it really, really bad. And so, she, you know, we, we got a good, a real kick out of going through all those old letters. But one of them, we're dating two weeks now. She's 16, I'm 18. And the, one of the letters I write to her, I tell her I think I'm falling in love with her, right? And so I would say, Nadine, I love you. And she'd look at me and say... I like you very much. <laughs> and I was not deterred. I just wore her down. I like you very much. Hilarious. That's kind of what's happening with Jesus and Peter here. Jesus is saying, Peter, I love you. And Peter's response is kind of like Nadine's. I like you very much. They're having a very different response. You can do a study on the different words for love that's being used there. Do you love me? Do you love me? Is there a harder question that you could be asked by someone? It certainly implies that you've done something to suggest otherwise, that maybe you don't love me. If the question's being asked, it could mean that. How do you answer with words when you know that your actions have fallen short? I can only imagine that the words just cut Peter to his heart. Because not long before this conversation, Peter had abandoned Jesus at his moment of greatest need. And that was after he boldly promised, pridefully promised, in front of all his friends that he'd die for Jesus. In the heat of the moment, Peter's fears caught up with him, and he proved that he loved his own life more than he loved his friend. Jesus had asked the question twice, referring to the greatest depth of love one person could offer to another using the word agape. 
And Peter could not say that he loved in the same way. I can just guess or imagine that he felt like, I can't, I can't tell you. I can't be that arrogant. I can't be that bold like I was before I betrayed you, before I abandoned you, before I denied you. So he uses the word philos in a response, meaning I have great affection for you, meaning I love you like a brother loves, or I, I'm your friend, I'm fond of you. Or like Nadine would say, I like you very much. John's Gospel doesn't explain why Peter couldn't use the word Jesus used, but I think we can safely say, we can take a guess that it probably has something to do with his failure at Jesus' arrest. Peter knew that his actions didn't match his words. Maybe he was trying to be humble or more authentic in the moment. But the third time he's asked, Jesus switches the word to the word Peter uses, to the word brotherly affection. So in other words, he says to Peter, Peter, are you my friend? And even though Peter was hurt being asked a third time, he answers yes. Take notice how completely undeterred Jesus was. All three times, Jesus invited Peter past his weakness and into kingdom activity. He says, take care of my sheep. He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Jesus' message is clear to Peter. <laughs> You're not damaged goods. Your failure hasn't changed anything between us. I still agape you, Peter. You're still in the family. We haven't voted you off the island. I still trust you, Peter. He's saying, I love you. And he's asking him to take care of his sheep. He's saying, Peter, I love you and I trust you. I'm still here for you. I'm still in this relationship. You're still one of mine. It's an amazing exchange. And for a number of reasons. And it's not just for the answers he saw from Peter, but the simple fact that the questions that were asked at all. What God cares about being loved. <laughs> None but ours. What God cares about being loved? Do you love me? Not exactly the question we expect God to ask of men. Yet John chooses to record this event as one of the most significant post-resurrection conversations. God asking man, do you love me? And he repeats himself. You know, any time in scripture where you see God repeat himself, it's really good to pay attention. Those are the parts you want to underline. You want to put a star next to it. You want to highlight those. Anytime God repeats himself. Three times. Jesus asked Peter the question. Why would God care about being loved? He's God Almighty. Enthroned in the presence of countless, innumerable, adoring angels. He can command obedience simply because he is the greatest power in the universe. 
Why would he seek Peter's love? If you look throughout human history, mankind's much more comfortable with deities that command fear instead of love. Almost every idol or false god man's ever created seeks submission from its subjects by terror. You do what I'm going to tell you to do or I will hammer you to death. But love? What false god ever wanted to be loved? Feared, yes. Obeyed, yes. Served. At extreme sacrifice. Yes. But never loved. And Jesus, he's looking for love. With the work of the cross finished and the resurrection behind him, what does Jesus do? He goes seeking out the love of his friend. And he sought it from the one who failed him most. I believe that what Jesus sought from Peter is exactly what God the Father seeks from us. The warmth and the tenderness of a relationship that's filled with love. And even as I share those words, it settles in my soul and it feels like it's right. It feels right to me. For some of us, it's unfamiliar. The message doesn't sound familiar. It's not what I've heard in church before. But it feels right. What God is seeking is the warmth and tenderness of a relationship filled with love. You see, love is at the very core of God's nature. John summed up the substance of God in a very simple statement. In 1 John 4, 8, he says, God is love. Now, we may not have the capacity to comprehend all that God is or understand the theological dynamics of the Trinity or how love is shared between the Father, love, and the Spirit or how they're able to operate in some astonishing levels of unity. But we know that they exist in a perfect state of love. That the most powerful word, that love, that love is the most powerful force in the universe. It's more powerful than our failures. This is what I love about the encounter with Peter. Love was more powerful than his failures. Love was more powerful than his sin. Love is more powerful than your failures. Or your sin. Or your disappointments. Love's more powerful than your dreams. Or even your fears. Nothing can prevail over it. And nothing else will lead you into a life of holiness like it. I think the church has had it backwards for so long. If you behave right, then you'll experience love. No, no, no. That's the world's model. That's how we operate. That's man making God in man's image. It's his love for us. I love because he first loved me. While we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemy, he loved us. He loves us, and it's his love that changes us, and it's his love that produces holiness in us. Love is stronger than fear. 
you know, we've, we've lived in different parts of the United States, and I've noticed in the different places that we've gone that there are, there are, there are strongholds. I'm not sure if I like that word. There are, there are common maladies that strike different regions. And so when we lived in West Virginia, boy, there was, it was just overcome with poverty. Everywhere you looked. When we lived in, in Pacific Northwest, when we were in Washington State, there was discouragement or, or depression at just epidemic levels. When we moved back to New York, for the first time I could see that it is so fear-driven. It's no mistake that on 9-11, terror would strike that city. If you've never been down to Ground Zero, one of the intersections where this took place is at the intersection of Church Street and Liberty Street. I think that means something, that terror, that fear would strike at the intersection of Liberty and Church. I think that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We ought to be the ambassadors of freedom. We ought to be the agents of freedom. And yet fear strikes in that place. What's greater than fear? Love is greater than fear. <clears throat> Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You guys have all heard that verse, right? If you were like me, you used to have a little box, had Bible verses in it, little cards you could pull out. That one's always in there. Fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. And it is. That's a true statement. I agree with it. The fear of the Lord isn't wrong. But it's absolutely incomplete. It's the beginning. <laughs> it's the first rung of the ladder to know God. Loving friendship is the highest point of knowing God. Now look, if you don't love God, you'll probably well serve the fear of At least it might keep you from behavior that will French fry your life. You know? Or the lives of those around you. But once you know how much he loves you, once you are convinced of his extravagant love for you, you'll never be motivated by fear again. It's nearly impossible. Now, I've been trying to grasp the reality of his love for me in the last three or four years. It's, this message that I've been sharing these last few weeks, it's been bubbling up in my heart. And it's taken a while for it to chip away at all the church stuff <laughs> and put layers on them. <clears throat> and I've, I've experienced His love to such a degree that sometimes it's hard for me to even fathom the concept of a relationship where I'm terrified by Him. Now, having said that, there are times where I've experienced, I've had spiritual experiences where I've encountered God. It's been tender and loving. The tender, loving heart of a father. I've had encounters with Jesus that have just melted my heart. And then there are times, it's like he, he pulls back the veil and you get to see him in all his glory. And, and that's, that's terrifying. He's, he's so awesome. He's so amazing. But it's not a terror that makes me want to um, crumble away or hide from him. But it just causes me to have this incredible sense of awe 
that one so powerful could also be one so loving. Once you know how much he loves you, you'll never be motivated by fear of him again. In other words, God the Father, Papa, doesn't just seek your fearful obedience, he wants your affection. He can have your fearful obedience without your love. But once he has your love, he'll have your whole heart and everything that comes with it, including obedience. And so I think there's, there's been this battle between fear and love in the church. Certainly in the Western worldview expression of the church. But the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4 that there is no fear in love. Wrap your head around that. There's, the same one who said God is love, he says there's no fear in love. Because fear has to do with punishment. John was trying to convince the church in Asia Minor that God's love had replaced an old order of fear. It was revolutionary then. It's still revolutionary today. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9 tells us that God takes away to establish. I think it's a spiritual principle. In Hebrews 10, it's specifically talking about the way God chose to have relationship with people. Sort of about covenants, old and new covenant. They took away the old covenant and established a new covenant. We celebrated that in communion today. The new covenant that he established in his love. The new replaced the old. A new way, a new covenant. Unfortunately, for most of us, we seem a bit more comfortable with fearing God than we do with loving God. It's the very bad fruit of organized religion. It's the fruit of, if you remember I shared, I think it was last week, God's good, you're bad, try harder. Remember that? All right, the little girl comes home from youth group one night and they ask her, hey, what'd you learn? What'd you learn this week? She says, ah, same old message, God's good, you're bad, try harder. We got to offer a better message than that. That's pitiful. I mean, that's horrible. Of course I'm bad. That's why I need God. And if the, if the message that we tell people is try harder, at some point you've got to ask yourself, well, how much harder? I've been doing this for 35 years. How much harder i got to try? If it was a matter of trying harder, I'd have gotten there a long time ago. Or I should just find a new hobby because I suck at this. This is horrible. <laughs> I mean, Really? God's good, you're bad, try harder, man. That's the fruit of bad religion. Fear isn't in God's nature. He fears nothing. Absolutely nothing. Remember, God is love. The very essence and nature of who He is is love. God's own holiness isn't the product of fear. It's the product of love. In fact, <laughs> fear cannot produce the holiness God wants to share with us. Fear cannot produce the holiness God wants to share with us. If fear has no place in love, then fear will never get us to be more like Him. Because He is love. 
It's incapable of doing so. If it could, we would have just maintained the old covenant. Why do we need a new one? Just keep heaping on more rules and regulations. By God, we'll get there. Or we won't. If God wants to transform us to be like Him, He must expel our fears. Because there's no fear in Him. And teach us the wonder of living in His love. That's, that's the track I'm on. That's the foundation I want to lay. This is the security I want us to live in. That He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. The Apostle John portrays love and fear as polar opposites. 1 John 4.18 Perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear in love. God is love. It's pretty clear. Fear by its very nature is limiting, while love by its nature is liberating. He came to set the captives free. So in Christ, the Father wants to win our affections with His own. He no longer needed our fear. Knowing that we would never truly love what we fear. Doesn't that make sense? How can you truly love what you fear? You can't love what you fear. You can't wholeheartedly and truly love what you're terrified of. Fear may get you to conform. It may modify your behavior. But conformity doesn't produce intimacy. So, who of us have ever you know, had a police car pull up behind us on a highway? Right? I think everybody's had that experience. So you see him in the rearview mirror, you're thinking, okay, got my seatbelt on, <laughs> driving the speed limit. And then the lights go on, oh man, and you're like, ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Thinking, what did I do? Not only you, but every other car around you conforms to the traffic laws, right? Everybody, <laughs> everybody's playing nice now. <laughs> For those few minutes, everyone feels, you know, everyone's safe. They may not feel safe, but they're safer, right? Safer than normal because of the, the officer's presence. But that doesn't make you, keep you from feeling relieved when he pulls off at the next exit, right? Well, like, I'm not going to get a ticket. So even though the, the police car's presence made you feel... Uh, you know, even though his presence was more helpful than you realized, it didn't really make you want to be the officer's friend, did it? It wasn't like, oh, this was an interesting experience. I'll think I'm a, I'll invite him over for coffee next week, right? No, you're just happy that he's gone. Why? Because conformity doesn't produce intimacy. It doesn't. It's a terrible motive. It's where organized religion gets it backwards. It's why so many church people still feel like and still remain so distant from God. Because somehow we believe that conformity to a list of rules and regulations and principles will somehow produce intimacy in us. And it doesn't work that way. It's not how he wired us. 
It's not how what we were created for. We think that conformity to God's ways will lead us closer to Him. And the opposite is true. What we focus on, we make room for in our lives. What we focus on, we make room for. If we focus on our fears and our performance, He will seem distant. Because He's love. And has nothing to do with fear. And I don't know about you, but my performance is never good enough. Only by living in the assurance of His affection can He transform us. Fearing God may compel us to conform our behaviors to His desires for a while, but it won't last. It never does, right? Come on, be honest. It hasn't for me. I mean, I can't even be good for a while, but eventually I run out of steam. And he didn't have to create us that way. He could have created us differently. That if you do this good thing for 30 days in a row, for 30 years in a row, then you'll get there. But it never works out that way. I've tried dieting. Do I look like I've done pretty good with that? <laughs> it just doesn't last. And so then what happens is, because it's ineffective, we need more and more fear to keep us in line. Just to keep us motivated. And in the process, intimacy, true intimacy, is just destroyed. It's like a woman abused by her husband. She knows fear, but she doesn't know intimate love. And that's not the picture of God that Jesus painted for us. So fear might be the most powerful motive known to man, but the love of God is more powerful still. Because perfect love drives out fear. Love displaces fear like light displaces darkness. She came into this room before this morning, somebody flipped a switch on. And it was effortless for the light to overcome the darkness. Darkness gets annihilated. Love comes in, and Scripture says it drives out fear. So this is a, it's a critical transition for us. There's nothing more critical to, to spiritual growth and maturity than making this transition. John 4.18 ends this way. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We're incomplete as long as we live in fear or by fear. We're incomplete as, we're, as long as we're driven and motivated by fear. We remain incomplete as long as our relationship with God is based, is fear-based instead of being love-based. Only love will make us perfect and complete in God. It's the only way. If we try to serve God because we fear His punishment, we'll do the best we can for as long as we can, but we'll repeatedly come up short 
Then we'll be then we'll feel dominated by guilt and shame. From that we usually justify some of our failures. This is my life experience. <laughs> but we never discover what it really means to be God's friend. God has a better way. He wants you to know His love so completely that fearing Him will have no place in your life. And that statement may rock some of your theology, but I challenge you to study 1 John chapter 4 if it does. When you are absolutely convinced of how much God loves you, that knowledge will drive fear out of your life. Are you plagued with fears? God's perfect love is the antidote. Secure in His love, you won't need to fear anything. Not failure, not the future, not the present, not the past, nothing. Not rejection, you don't have to fear need or loss. It's an amazing sense of security in His love. Knowing God's heart for you will allow you, will, it will set you free to trust Him like never before. And that's what will transform every area of your life. I know that this is scary for some of you. It's like I'm asking you to let go of your life raft in a stormy sea. But God's love is unlike any other love that you've ever known. He promises that He will never leave you or forsake you. That He's near to the brokenhearted and to those who are crushed in spirit. Scripture tells us that when we're faithless, still He's faithful. He is perfect love and He cannot deny His very nature. This is the love that will allow you to feel perfectly safe in God's presence. It frees you to be exactly who you really are, weaknesses and all. Never again with the need to pretend or to be fake. This life in God that we're called to rises out of a security in His love for you. Not in the insecurity that you don't love Him enough. This is the lesson Jesus is teaching Peter that morning by the Sea of Galilee. My love's enough, Peter. It's my message to you today. So let me end with let me end with Romans 8.15. Paul writes to the church of Rome, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Listen to that again. 
How do we forget these verses? How come this one isn't in the little box of verses that we pick up? You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, like the old system. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, which we cry out, by which we cry out, Abba, by which you cry out, Daddy, by which you cry out, Papa. terms of endearment and affection. We've not been given, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love. A father's great love for you. So let's pray. Lord, there's been so many times in my life I've felt like Peter. I know I've messed up. That when I should have stepped up, I stepped back. I stepped out. I just failed miserably. Lord, I pray that you'd remind us today that you love us like you loved him. Lord, a change needs to happen deep down inside of us, the core of our being. I pray that you would be merciful and gracious and that you'd strip away the layers of religion that has heaped upon us more rules and regulations of men. And get us down to the real deal. I pray that we here, community church, that we'd experience everything you intended in your coming. Everything that you wanted for us in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Lord, I pray that we'd experience intimately, experientially, personally, all that you purposed in sending us the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would make of us a people who live loved, who live love, and who live supernaturally. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.